Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word tonight and we hear news of Christians' lives throughout different parts of the world, we pray that uh, your spirit would lead us to worship you anew. Amen. I've uh, called this uh, sermon or this talk Life for the Follower of Jesus. And as I was looking at the passage, which you will hear in a minute, I wondered, what's the reality for followers of Jesus today? Many of us will have heard the comment from children, or maybe from other people as well, well, life is just not fair. It's not fair that my brother can go out tonight. It's not fair that this can happen. Well, sometimes life can seem not to be fair. We can identify with children's comments or everybody else's comments and attitudes like that. And I wondered, what is our life like as a result of the fact that we are following Jesus? Is there any difference in our lives compared to that of our neighbours or our work colleagues or our, our friends? And what about those Christians who live in different parts of the world? Those that are living in Iraq today or Syria or the Lebanon or Pakistan? Some of you may have been listening to what has been going on. And I wondered, what would you say to those Christians in Baghdad today who are meeting in the cathedral and who are wondering, in fact, whether they will last out the week as the troops move further towards the city? What would we say to them if we could physically speak to them? Well, I've got a little exercise for you to do. I wondered if I said to you, I'm going to give you a piece of A4 and a pen, would you bullet point the things that you would want to say if you were writing a pastoral letter to those Christians in Baghdad today? Have a think about that. I'm not going to ask you to do it, but have a think of the bullet points about what you would include And then in a couple of minutes, I'll ask you, perhaps you'd have a little discussion with the person sitting next to you about that. And if we get anyone who's very brave, you can share it with the rest of the congregation. So bullet points, what would you include in a pastoral letter to those Christians sitting in the cathedral in Baghdad today, worshipping God? And share it with your neighbour now. What would you include? Okay, any brave people who'd like to share anything with the rest of us? What would you say? Yeah, Eugene? Um, I would probably say to them, uh, just keep doing what they were doing and not to be afraid of people that might kill them. Because obviously, if they're 
Okay, thank you. That's really good stuff. Okay. Oh, um, Eugene said that he would encourage them to keep on doing what they're doing, worshipping God, because if they die for that, it's worth doing. Let's have our reading. It's 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Um, it's page on, found on page 1220. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed with his glory, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief, or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you may bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ellie. Okay, well, we're in this series in 1 Peter, and if you haven't been with us before, a little bit of background about it. This letter was written by the Apostle Peter to encourage Jewish Christians who had been driven out of Jerusalem and scattered throughout Asia Minor. He writes about the times in which he lives. It's the time of the Roman Emperor Nero, where Christians were beginning to be heavily persecuted for following Jesus. Now, If we try to get into their mindset, life must have been hard for them. They'd been forced to leave Jerusalem and to leave areas that they would have called home, including friends and family, and now they were facing the threat of active persecution and harm. We know that Peter himself was uh, martyred in Rome during Nero's reign, somewhere in the region of about 64 AD. Well, what about today? What about the situations for followers of Jesus finding themselves in today? Well, dying for Christ seems almost surreal, doesn't it, to us Westerners? We live in a part of the world where Christianity rarely makes the news unless it's to be mocked or defamed. Otherwise, the media is strangely silent about modern-day Christian martyrdom. Three things distinguish anti-Christian persecution and discrimination around the world, says Denver's Archbishop Charles Chaput to the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. He says this, Firstly, it's ugly. Secondly, it's growing. And thirdly, the mass media generally ignore or downplay its gravity. According to the Roman Catholic Church and the Vatican, 132 Catholics have died for their faith since 2001. And this is not a complete list. 
In 2005, the report acknowledges that there are many more possible unknown soldiers of the faith in remote corners of the planet whose deaths may never be reported. And now we have the situation in Iraq, in Syria, in, uh, in Turkey, in Pakistan, where Christians are dying because they are Christians, persecuted by militant groups. I'd like you to watch uh, a short piece of video now. It's just uh, about two, two and a quarter minutes of a situation that was uploaded about what's happening in Turkey. On Easter Sunday, April 8, 2007, Nejati Aydin was in the performance of his life. The 36-year-old was playing the role of Jesus Christ in an Easter production. He loved to serve the Lord. That was his passion. Born into an Islamic family, Najati converted to Christianity in 1994. His family was so upset about his conversion, they even put a gun into his head and asked him to recant, but he did not. Sitting in the audience that Easter morning were five Muslim men who had befriended Najati. According to Turkish authorities, the men wanted to know more about Christianity. They were pretending as they were seekers. Ten days later, on April 18th, the men's true intentions would unravel in a brutal attack that would shake Turkey's tiny Christian community. Five men stormed into Najati's office on the fourth floor of this building. Armed with kitchen knives, the men tied up Najati and two other Christians, 46-year-old German citizen Tilman Geski and 32-year-old Ur Uksel, another Turkish convert from Islam. Every time I close my eyes, it looks like I, I see, I have a good, um, I can picture things very well. So when I close my eyes, I always see him sitting in the office. Tillman and Susanna moved to Malatya in 1997. They knew that living here wasn't going to be easy. The city has deep Islamist and nationalistic roots. Anti-Christian sentiments run high here. This was a tense place. Yes, we know this. Ur Yuxel experienced the tension in 2005 when protesters stood outside the same building accusing him and other believers of using a publishing company to distribute Bibles. The Bible tells us that when we accept Jesus into our lives, we must be willing to count the cost. Christian uh, charities, Release International, Barnabas Fund, and the World Evangelical Alliance say that persecution facing modern Christians is amongst the largest human rights violation issues in the world today. They reckon that about 200 million Christians in at least 60 countries are denied their fundamental human rights solely because of their faith. The most common forms of persecution are violence against people, property, exclusion from education, employment and removal of access to housing, Bibles, food and water. In the UK, of course, we don't see that there's any direct persecution of Christians. However, there has been a rise in an aggressive type of secularism which is intolerant of Christianity. Some Christians sense that their ideas, symbols and activities are being marginalised. 
As evidence of this, they draw attention, for instance, to Christian images relating to Christmas being replaced with symbols of winter by some city councils. In some situations, Christians have found the implications of their belief to be unacceptable to their employers. Dr. Taj Harjay, who's the imam of the Summertown Oxford Islamic Congregation, says this, Christianity is under siege in this country. British national religion has never been so marginalised and derided by the public institutions that should be defending it. Jonathan Wynne-Jones, a journalist writing in the Daily Telegraph, says this, Once faith has been made to look ridiculous, the attempts of believers to rebut the criticism will be met with deaf ears, and then the line between ridicule and persecution becomes even thinner. So that's the background to our passage tonight. So let's return to the passage then that you will find on page 1220. What does Peter say to these Christians that he is writing to? What's he say? Well, the key verse, I believe, is actually found in chapter 1, verse 7, where he writes this. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. So when your faith remains strong, through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honour on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. In other words, what he's saying there is that their faith will be made strong through persecution on problems and they can look forward to a future. And Peter outlines this in this passage that we've got in front of us this this evening. He outlines the right attitude for Jesus' followers to have about persecution. So there are three points, conveniently, which come from this passage. The first point is to expect it. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. He says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through. Now we may feel, of course, that Pete is perhaps onto a, a hobby horse of his. You know, he's the only one who's saying this. But this is not true. It's supported by other New Testament passages. We read in John, John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 18 through to 20. Jesus says this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And in verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me they will also persecute you. In other words, what we get here is that Jesus warns us that if we follow him, if we teach others his teaching, which is revolutionary and threatening to those who want control, if we teach them that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to God, then we should expect that we will get opposition. Now, in my experience, people will often accept the fact that Jesus was a great man. They often acknowledge the fact that he's a great teacher, a great moralist. But it's when we say that Jesus claims to be God's son, and the only way to God is through repentance and faith in him, that we get strong opposition. Now, in my work life at school, I have found exactly the same thing. Educationalists are happy 
when we teach that Jesus is one of the great moral teachers, a great founder of a faith. But they're not happy when we claim that Jesus is the only way to God and that we are sinners who need to repent. We're called bigots. It's not politically correct. But this opposition shouldn't stop us, but we can expect it. Brothers and sisters, Peter states in chapter 1, verse 7, God's plan for your life might be to include pain and hardship of various kinds, because through it your faith is refined and strengthened. And that's the important point, isn't it? Whatever we're going through, whatever type of pain or, or, or problems, our faith is refined and strengthened. The Apostle Paul also has the same sort of message to young Christians and young churches he's writing to. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul writes to the, the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, For truly, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass. And he writes to the young leader, Timothy, Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ, Jesus shall suffer persecution. So, we've got Jesus telling us that there will be persecution. We've got Peter. We've got Paul. Okay, major disciples, major leaders of our faith. So reflecting upon these passages, we may well question as to why it is modern Christian teachers and leaders are not giving the same messages to today's churches to expect persecution, which will refine and strengthen our faith. It begs the question, of course, how can we prepare for it? Well, I, can, I believe that we can prepare for it by copying the example of Jesus. If you think about Jesus and his life, think about his time of ministry as you read the Gospels, what do you see? Well, you see that he took time to be with the Father. Sometimes he would spend all night with the Father by himself. But not only did he take time to be with the Father, he submitted to the Father's will by being obedient which encouraged the Spirit of God. Obedience to the Father's will encourages the Spirit of God to live within our lives. And it's this that will help us to live through problems and persecution. We need, though, to be aware, don't we, that not all trouble comes to us because we follow Christ. Trouble can come from many sources. It can come from man's actions and nature's actions. It can come from our own weaknesses, from wrong decisions we take, from wrong relationships we make, or unforeseen actions of others. Let's not blame God for these, or blame society. But when trouble comes, because we're living disciples and followers of Jesus, living as Christ showed us, proclaiming the saving gospel of Jesus, then we can take on board the promises of Christ, that he will send his spirit to strengthen those that are persecuted for his sake. So the first thing then is, Peter says, expect persecution. But the second thing is, rather surprisingly, be thankful 
for the privilege of suffering for Christ. Look in verses 13 through to 18. Now, you may well say, Nigel, well, this is something very strange. Why would we be glad to suffer? It seems macabre and somewhat masochistic to be thankful for suffering. Surely the best thing is for us to have an easy, happy life where we're fulfilled as we lead others to Jesus. That's surely what Jesus would want for his followers. Well, Peter seems to state the opposite. But it means as we suffer for being followers of Jesus, that we're joining with Christ in his suffering. Look in verse 13. We are participating in what Jesus came to earth to do, to show the love of God to all. But not only will we become a part of Jesus' work, we'll be equipped for this task by his glorious spirit, which will rest upon you. In other words, we will receive a full anointing of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. So why then should they be thankful and why should we be thankful? Well, we read in verse 13, because we are promised that we will be with him in glory in the future if we have suffered and been prepared to suffer for him on earth. Now for this to impact on us, for this to impact on me, I think there's a need for us to have an understanding of the glory of Christ when he comes to judge the world and to establish the new kingdom, what's often called heaven. If you want to see about this glory of God, look in Daniel 7 and some passages in Revelation. Look at the imagery used to portray this glory. So for this to be relevant to my life, I need to get a real vision of the holiness of God which goes well beyond normal human understanding, and to live in the expectancy of judgment and the heavenly kingdom. If you were with us last week, you will remember what Alan said to us about that pastor, that Pentecostal pastor in the 19th century, used to get up every morning and open the curtains and say, Jesus, is this the day you're going to come? And he lived in that expectation that each day Jesus would come back. So we need to live in that sort of expectation. Peter in this passage is also stating that not only will they share in Christ's glory, but they can be thankful because they will have the glorious Spirit of God resting upon them. That is, they are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we can see an example of this with the death of Stephen. If you look in Acts chapter 7, we read that Stephen had given the Jewish council an account of Jesus' life and their part in the death of Jesus. And this infuriated them. So we read in verse 54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations. They shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And in verse 59, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. So what Peter is saying to these young Christians who were dispersed and in danger of persecution is rather than being resentful, scared, or offended at suffering for being a witness to Jesus, be glad that you are identified with him 
in his suffering and that you will be with him in eternity. See how this changes the whole perspective upon life. This type of life is not about material possessions, popularity, having 150,000 friends on Facebook, or having a good life. No, it's all about the glory of God. Truly, this Christian discipleship is completely opposite to that of the world's idea of a good life. So, expect persecution, be thankful for it. And thirdly and lastly, there is no shame in persecution. The apostles counted it a great privilege to suffer for Christ because it showed God's approval of their work in preaching the good news. We read of this again in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. We read that the apostles left the high council of the Jewish council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And so Peter writes to encourage them. So he states in verse 16, Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. Now this is a complete turnaround, isn't it? Rather than feeling sorry for themselves, that they are encouraged to praise God for the situation in which they find themselves. Again, it's a totally different viewpoint to the world's attitude towards life. We can praise God for the situations in which we find ourselves as we suffer and if we suffer for Christ. He continues in verse 19, if you're being persecuted, because there's no shame in this, you should keep on doing good. In other words, don't let the persecution stop the practical outworking of your faith. Carry on doing good. The practical outworking of your faith. Yes, you believe in Christ. Yes, you follow his teaching. Well, keep on showing it by doing good. But you are in a challenging situation. and Therefore, you must trust God with your whole lives. In other words, give your lives over totally to God. Trust that he will be with you and that you will join with Jesus in glory in eternity for his love and his presence. In other words, totally believe and trust in God for deliverance. So what Peter is saying then through this passage is, although life may be hard for them at their time, although life may be hard for us at this time, because we are Christians, be strong. Christian persecution may not be avoidable, but as Christians we can endure it, we can carry on witnessing by doing good and doing what Jesus would want us to do. So, returning to those points I asked you, to think about or to metaphorically write down in your mind, in your pastoral letter to those Christians in Baghdad or Syria today? Is this what you would have said to them concerning persecution? Would you have said to them, this is to be expected? Be thankful. There is no shame in your situation because God's Holy Spirit will be with you and you will share in Christ's glory when he comes again. It's perhaps easy for me to stand here and talk about what's happening to people in a distant land. But what about us? 
At present, we don't live in a country where there's active persecution of Jesus' follows. Perhaps we miss out our faith because our faith isn't being tested and tried through the fires of persecution. Perhaps we don't receive the blessings of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the ways those do who suffer. Do we need to learn from those brothers and sisters who've gone through this in whatever culture they live and whatever time? Remember, people have suffered persecution in our our, uh, country in history. We can learn from them. But surely we can take ways to support those today. We can pray for them. We can offer support to organisations like the Barnabas uh, Trust who seek to, to help those in need. We can actively lobby our MPs to help them to try to bring pressure upon those governments. But as we seek to know Jesus more, as we seek to know God more, this may well lead us into boldness, but it may also lead us into suffering. Peter predicts it for those who want to follow Jesus. I found this quote, which I think is quite apt. It comes from a poet called Paul Claudel. He says this, Jesus did not come to explain suffering, nor to take it away. He came to fill it with his presence. And remember Paul's writing in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. So just to leave you with a few thoughts to consider this week, as maybe you look at this passage again. Ask ourselves, if we're not suffering because we're following Jesus, what's this saying about our discipleship, our evangelism? What are the implications of this from Jesus' teaching? And an extract from Psalm 31 to finish off with that shows that persecution is not a new experience for God's people. Psalm 31, or parts of it, says this, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Peter and all that he wrote to encourage those young Christians who were dispersed in Asia Minor. We pray, Father, that you would be with those in Baghdad, in Syria and other locations around the world who are actively suffering persecution today, this week. We pray for them. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon them and that you would sustain them. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, that whatever we're going through and we're going to go through this week, we pray that your spirit would dwell amongst us so that we can praise your name. Amen.